Well, as Pastor Josh said, uh, we have the lights down this morning to try to help keep it a little bit cool, although uh, we are talking about um, the fiery furnace this morning and King Nebuchadnezzar, so, you know, maybe we were playing this all wrong. We should lock the doors and close the windows and turn up the heat, right? Um, I would ask you to open your Bibles to Daniel 3, and uh, this morning we're going to learn from Daniel's three friends that worship is not optional. It's really not a choice that you get to make. Worship is, in fact, inescapable. Uh, Or to say it this way, we cannot not worship, to use a double negative, which nobody really likes. There's no such thing as a person who does not worship or one who is worship neutral. The only question is, who or what are we worshiping? What is the object of our worship? Whatever is supreme in our life, whatever has our heart's affection, whatever is primary, whatever occupies preeminence in our life, that is the person or object of our worship. And I, to be honest with you, I think in our culture, for most people, do you know what I think the the thing of worship really is? I think it's self. We, We might even do that under the guise of religion or a certain kind of beliefs or whatever. We might even sort of pay lip service to some deity or whatever. But in the end, the, the, the criteria for a God for most people is one who brings some value to my life. But as soon as there's an authority, as soon as there's a, something contradictory to my will, as soon as, as soon as someone else is sovereign, then, you know, oftentimes that's about the end of those religious convictions. I think we are, in fact, de facto worshipers of self. But we're all worshipers. A couple weeks ago, my family was in Denali Park, and, and Gus, our youngest, ran up to me, and, and um, he kind of had like a pretend camera in his hand, and he jumped in front of me and took a picture real quick, and he goes, aha, selfie, and then he ran off. I thought that was really interesting, actually, kind of telling of our culture, even my own kids, you know. He, I mean, we, we played the same games as kids where we would run up to someone, but we would say, right, gotcha, I got a picture of you. And now our sense is a picture of me, right? We, we are increasingly, increasingly um, self-centered. We are increasingly that way in our, in our culture. The reality is, however, we are engineered by God, designed by him, put together by him to be worshipers. That's how we're made. That's what we were made for. And we will either worship the God of the universe, the creator God, the God of the scriptures, or we will turn our worshiping nature to other things. We are a worshiping critter with no off switch. The issue is where do we direct it? Is it to the supreme and sovereign God, God most high? Or is it to something else, lesser and inferior? Daniel 3 really puts this truth on display. Look with me in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So all those people... Uh, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. 
As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of all those instruments, all the nations and people of all language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What's really interesting to me here is uh, kind of the abrupt change that, it, that is taken between chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you remember, we end chapter 2 and King Nebuchadnezzar is making a pretty remarkable, we might even call it a statement of faith. He makes some pretty interesting theological claims and as we read them, we think he's got it. He, he believes maybe we even have a sort of conversion here, right? It, in in uh, verse 46 it says, of chapter 2, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel paid him honor, and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Then the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. So, it, you know, we end the chapter with these pretty profound theological statements. We, we think it's right. But what we find out here is this, that it is not simply enough to merely know about God or even to declare right statements about God. But rather this, more than knowing about God, we must entrust ourselves to him. We must entrust ourselves to him. In fact, the divide between knowing even the truth about God and yet having a saving, a saving relationship with him, on one hand, it's such a short distance. But on the other hand, it's a chasm wider than we can even imagine. And those of you who have sons or daughters um, who know the truth about God but would not call themselves a Christian or spouses or grandkids or neighbors or friends, loved ones that know the right information but don't have a saving faith, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. The scripture teaches us that salvation is activated by faith. This is not just told to us in the New Testament, but this point is made in nearly all of the Old Testament narratives. In fact, when we look at Hebrews 11, it kind of casts a glance back at all of these heroes of the faith who were specifically identified as God-fearers because they entrusted themselves to the Lord through faith. Faith is more than lip service. It is a life surrendered. And that is the contrast and display here at the beginning of this chapter as we look at Nebuchadnezzar's faith statement and we look at the faith statement of these three young friends faith is more than knowing again right at the beginning of the story we're we're confronted with the reality that there are are what we might call two kinds of faith or at least two different qualities of of faith there is a faith that just believes information but there is a deeper faith that entrusts oneself to that information they it acknowledges it and acts upon it There's a difference between faith that and faith in. There's a difference, and it makes all the difference in the world. In other words, I can believe that this chair right here will hold me. I can look at it and have all the confidence and faith in the world. I could tell everybody in the room, that's a good chair. That chair is going to hold me. But I have to entrust myself to it for that faith to be real and active. And that is what is missing in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He makes a faith statement. 
but he does not entrust himself to the God of that statement. And so we're taught throughout the scripture that saving, and faith, and tr- saving faith entrusts ourselves to God. We see this in the book of James in the New Testament in chapter 2, right? Where James says, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and what? Shudder. I've said this before, but the, the, the theology of demons is probably a lot better than most people in this room. The faith of demons is probably a lot stronger than many people in this room because it's not even a hope that or a suggestion that maybe this is in fact the case. They know for sure. They've seen God. They've seen him at work. They know what he's capable of and they oppose him. Knowledge of is not saving. We must entrust ourselves to that being. The passage goes on, you, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Faith is more than knowing. It's entrusting oneself. Secondly here, we see that faith requires that, that God is supreme in our life. Look at verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. There's a little bit of sucking up for you right there. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Interesting. We see his real theology on display, don't we? What we learn here too is that we must worship him alone, God alone. We get this pretty clear picture now of Nebuchadnezzar's thinking and his theology and it's really not all that unlike the theology of people who walk the earth today. Nebuchadnezzar is clearly polytheistic. People today are what we might call pluralistic. And there's some similarity between the two. While people today may not worship many gods, they would fully recognize, oh, it's fine if, 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 if the reality that there might be uh, many gods. It's fine for you to worship whomever you want, even if in contradiction to mine. So there's a similarity of our, you know, really things haven't changed that much, have they? You know, we don't play the zither on a Sunday morning, but <laughs> things haven't changed that much. Our culture is perfectly happy to worship many gods. Their culture was as well. It's interesting to me here, though, I think that the insult that Nebuchadnezzar is feeling here is not that these three friends worship Yahweh. I don't think that bothers him at all. 
be perfectly, yeah, it's just another God, whatever. What bothers him is that they won't worship what he has built to his own gods. The, the problem is that it's not reciprocated. They won't play by the societal rules. In fact, I think probably a lot of what's happening here is, I don't even think he's offended for his God, who isn't even named. I think he's offended for himself because they reject his order. They won't play by societal rules and they won't play by his authority. And that's a problem for him. Some scholars have suggested, and I, and I think this is right, that this statue here that's covered in gold is in fact King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to the revealed dream that he had had. You remember this. Last week we looked at the dream and here we, he was told that the, the, the golden top of this of this image in the dream was himself and the kingdom that he was ruling at the time, but that there would be three successive empires of inferior status that would each come and, and uh, uh, knock off the one before it. So the fact that he's building this golden image here, I think is really interesting and revealing and seems to me to be almost an act of self-preservation or defiance against what Yahweh has revealed. It's as though he's saying, you've given me an image of a reality, but I'll give you a reality right here. And I'll have you all worship it. It seems to me that that is, in fact, what he's doing. And so his statement of faith is evidently one of lip service only. And as with us, his actions betray his real faith. Our actions betray our real faith. seems to me again the primary issue for King Nebuchadnezzar is what we might call the scandal of authority. How many people do you know who like stories of the Bible? Maybe even they like the person of Jesus. They can sort of tolerate the Christian faith. That's all fine and well and good until it demands something of them that they do not want. Until God claims to be an authority in their life. Until they are no longer in the primary seat of power. That's when it becomes a problem. The scandal of authority. There's a great quote here by C.H. Spurgeon that I want to read for you. He says this. Men will allow God to be everywhere but on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They'll allow him to be in his almondry to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waters over the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. And we proclaim an enthroned God, and his right to do as he wills with his own to dispense of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love, but it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. You can see why he was called the Prince of Preachers. And so we have this contrast. Nebuchadnezzar willing to have really any God as long as it doesn't claim supremacy. But these three friends will pay allegiance to one God, one God alone. And uh, 
they're putting their, their theology on practice. This is, this is what they would have learned from their youth. From the earliest days, they would have recited the Shema, which we get from Deuteronomy 6.5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these three young men would have committed to memory the Torah. They would have known the first commandment. They would have had it memorized right at the tip of their tongue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The God of the Bible clearly shows himself to be one who does not share his rightful place of supremacy with anyone. If I could say it a little more provocatively, just as polygamy turns our stomach and makes us nauseous. So does pluralism turn God's. The God of the Bible is rightfully jealous about his supremacy in our life. He alone is to be worshipped. And we get to see, and that's in fact the case, we see that that's the case even in the Judean exile, right? The whole reason Judah was judged, the whole reason Jerusalem destroyed and the temple torn down and these these people taken into exile was because they had worshipped other gods. They had practiced idolatry. And so God is teaching them that he will, not, he will not share that place. And he will do whatever is necessary, even through painful discipline, to bring us back to the rightful relationship with him so that he is our all in all. And so the, the really painful lesson here is this. Christian, do not erect any idol in your life because God loves you enough to smash it. And if your heart's affections are tied to it and if you love it, it will hurt. Probably very few of us have a golden statue at home that we bow down to, I hope. If you do, raise your hand and elders pay attention, right? You know? <laughs> but all of us have more subtle idols of our own making. Jobs, careers, income, children, family, status, reputation, desires, possessions. We could go on and on. And the, most, the things that are most likely to be an idol for us are those things which are most subtle and they're good things. But we elevate them to a point that is beyond their right status. But we are learning from these young men. We get to see that some of these Judean exiles are learning the lesson for which God took them to Babylon. They're learning to worship God alone. Uh, Now, here's the thing that would be false to understand. If I just worship God alone, then everything will go well and good for me. Friends, it's a prosperity gospel and it's a lie. Don't believe it. I'm going to tell you the truth. If you believe in the Lord with all of your heart and you entrust yourself to him and you do well and you walk a faithful life of discipleship, you know what's going to happen? Hard things. That's the truth. This is not a do good, get good world. Rightful worship will be costly and our Judean exiles learned this, right? I was thinking about this, kind of how this might flesh out in our world. Consider this. If you were to tell the people that you work with or your neighbors or whatever, if you were to simply tell them, um, if you were to tell them that you're a worshiper of God, 
you know, they'd probably look at you a little funny. You know what I mean? If you were to use that word, I'm a worshiper. I worship Yahweh. I worship God, the God of the Bible. I think they would kind of look at you funny like, you're a fanatic, you know. You're one of those weirdos. If you were to tell them, on the other hand, I'm going to church on Sunday, they wouldn't have a problem with that. Sort of in one ear and out the other. In fact, they, they might sort of think, oh, you know, how, how quaint and traditional of you, you know. It would sort of have this traditional affect for them. You know, like going to visit grandma. It's really nice that you go and do that. Yeah, it's good for you. But if you told somebody that you were going to worship on Sunday and that that's a regular pattern of your life is to worship God, now you're going to raise an eyebrow. Now they're going to look at you a little differently. Um, and so I have some advice for you, which is going to sound a little bit funny, so you need to listen carefully. Are you ready? Quit going to church and start gathering for worship. Going to church is just an event in your calendar. Going to church is just being in a place. Going, and, going to church is just a way of saying, I'm going to walk in the door and receive religious goods and services for a season. Going to church is too small. Go to worship. Gather for worship with the people of God. And when you're here, give your whole heart to Him. Not just in song, but in all that you are. Continuing to come back and open up your heart and say, Lord, tune me. I'm an instrument of yours. And I don't want to walk around week in and week out out of tune. You're God most high. You're my savior and my rescuer. I belong to you. Your spirit indwells me. I'm here to tune my heart to you. Don't go to church. Gather for worship and all that that means and worship him wholeheartedly. And it will be costly. It will be costly for you. The third point we see here is this. We worship a God who is able to deliver. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I love these words. If we're thrown into a blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. And can I just say, my, my gory mind thought, why hotter? Why not cooler? You know, if it's cooler, it'll hurt more, right? You know, I'm just, sorry, just a little, that's too much information. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. And so these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. The king Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, please. I added the please. Come here. 
So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that, my people, that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their house turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What a great section. We learn here that worship affirms the nature of God. True worship affirms the nature of our God. There may be more heroic language in the scriptures, but I really can't think of it, you know, offhand than what these men say. The God we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, they recognize things about their God. They know their God. They know his power. They accept his sovereignty. They accept his divine prerogative to use it as he chooses or not. They do not worship a God for what they get. They worship him for who he is. And friends, I would say that is why right theology is important. Right theology, when we know God for who he is, we will worship him. Because it's clear he deserves it. It's bad theology that leads Christians to boredom. And quite frankly, Christians are guilty of taking in the most anemic and sickening theology that's out there on the most popular bookshelves. Go to the word and get the truth and drive it home deep in your heart. Right theology leads to natural worship. If you do want a good book with good theology, I recommend A.W. Tozer. (laughs) Knowledge of the Holy. In the first chapter, he has these three quotes which are helpful here. Men's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts about God. He goes on to say in this same chapter that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He closes this chapter. This is all in one chapter. This is how a good book goes. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. Those are good words. We see also that worship submits to God's divine prerogative. I think one of the persistent questions that I hear as a pastor is, where is God in my life? When will he show up in a way that I can see him at work? Where is he at work? I believe, but, you know, help my unbelief, to quote the passage. You know, one of the more haunting passages of Scripture for me, if I'm truthful about it, is from the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, after we read this, about this whole long line of faithful men and women, right? And we get to this this haunting section at the end that says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised to them. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. 
It's shocking. Don't we have a God who makes and keeps promises? Don't we have a God who is faithful? How is it then that these faithful people die not having received those promises? And we're given the harsh reality, but the truth, which is the fact that our faith does not lead us to always realize the promises that we have been given in our own lifetime or in our own timeline. But those promises are delivered at God's prerogative in his timeline. And very often, I think our disappointment with God is because we have too small, too low, too anemic expectations of God's promises. He's making a big promise, and we're seeing a little thing. And the faith of these men and women in Hebrews 11 is a bridge for a greater reality, right? A spiritual home that they were looking forward to. They didn't have a faith just to leverage stuff out of God for the here and now. They wanted to be with God. And that's what we're taught here. So inherent in their faith is the realization of his sovereignty and his divine prerogative. That's in the faith of these folks in Hebrews 11 and it's also evident to us here in the Danielic exiles. We're assured in both cases that God never overpromises and underdelivers. He delivers on a scale and a magnitude. And that magnitude is greater than we can imagine. When we find ourselves disappointed with God, it's because we're looking for something too small. Let me give you some examples. We, we just want a job. But God wants to give us a mission field. We just want some income. We just want to be gainfully employed. But God wants us to learn to depend upon him and to know that anything that we have is ultimately sourced in him and his provision. We just want a happy marriage, for heaven's sakes. Just a happy marriage, please. But God is taking us through something so that we can have a healthy marriage. And even through that marriage, to know God better, and to be an example, a living parable for those around us. We just want our kids to profess faith right now. Please, right now, as soon as humanly possible. But God is preparing them for a radical and a robust and an enduring faith that's learned through painful discovery and searching and revelation. So that it won't just be a relic that belonged to mom and dad. It'll be sincere and sincerely theirs. We just want good national leaders, please, for heaven's sake. But God wants us to turn to him, to see ourselves first and foremost as citizens of heaven, Christians first, citizens second. So God, you see, delivers on a scale and a magnitude that is always greater, always bigger, always more worthy, always glorious. We see here too, whether he delivers or whether he declines, he is also with us and always with us. I I love this phrase of Nebuchadnezzar. It's so good. One of them looks like a son of the gods. The only person to ever improve upon this line is the character from VeggieTales who says, one of them's real shiny. (laughs) Uh, What we find here is what we call a theophany. A theophany is a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ in a, in a human kind of form. And we don't just find it here, but we find it throughout the, New Te- or throughout, throughout the Old Testament. In fact, anytime you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, 
we're dealing with a theophany. The pre-incarnate Christ manifests in a human form. Uh, when you see an angel of the Lord, that's just an angel. But when you see the angel or where you see a presence like this, we see the pre-incarnate Christ on the scene in a ministering way. And from it and from the teaching of the scriptures as a whole, we get the assurance that God is always with us. And if case we missed it, it couldn't be any clearer than what he says in the Great Commission, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Friends, one of my goals as your pastor, I, I, I love to teach you what's in the scripture, but even more importantly than that, I would love to teach you how to read the scripture. I would love to give you the skills and to equip you to know how to read it for yourself, that you would nourish yourself on the word of God, that you would be good Bible readers and love it. And when we come to Old Testament narratives like this, we have to ask ourselves the right questions. We're not just to deduce a moral from them as we were reading Grimm's fairy tales. It's different. We have to ask the right questions. And and some of those questions are these. Why was this story included in the scriptures? What about it uniquely contributes to our faith and to our knowledge of the nature of God and to our understanding of his redemptive plan? And these are the questions that we need to ask. Or to ask it from the negative perspective, it would be this. If this story wasn't here, what would we be missing? Right? How would our faith be affected? How would my knowledge of God be limited and less? How might we view the redemptive plan of God in a diminished way? And so a few things come to mind for me, and I want to close with these. Some of the things that we learn from this particular narrative here is we learn about the eternality of the Son. In other words, we we see him in the Old Testament and the New. Otherwise, we might just believe that, that Jesus was a created being or that he emerged at a point in time. But we see that the Son of God is the eternal Son of God. So what the scriptures in the New Testament affirm about him we can see in the Old Testament as he has shown up in various theophanies. So we learn about the eternality of the Son. The passage reinforces for us too the omnipotence of God. We are assured he is able to save. And when he does not intervene, we learn that it is not weakness, but rather it's his wisdom that at times stays his intervening hand. We learn about the rightful jealousy of our God. And the corresponding pleasure that he takes in those who are faithful to him. We're given an encouraging picture of his ministering presence and the assurance that he is with us at all times, even the worst of times. And finally, and most importantly, we are given a foreshadow here to the ultimate ministry of Christ Jesus. Ultimately, Christ will come and he will be more than just attentive to our needs, but he will in fact enter into our situation, right? This rock hewn from heaven given to us in the last chapter, showing us this growing kingdom of God. Now we see this rock emerge on the scene in this theophany in a personal form. And all of this looks forward to Christ leaving the abode of heaven, entering into human existence, taking our sin upon himself, releasing our bondage and being in him, sin being destroyed in him, that we could be freed. And this story shows us that.
Friends, this is not a children's story about stand up for yourself. This is a story for the most mature that we serve one God alone and he's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way you have revealed yourself in Scripture, not just in statements, but that you have revealed yourself in narrative so we can see you on display. You've revealed yourself progressively, God, so that we could understand your magnitude little by little. I think, of, I think it was Emily Dixon who's, uh, uh, Dickens who said, uh, the truth must be revealed little by little or otherwise we'd go blind if we saw all of you all at once. So thank you for your graciousness to us, Lord, to show us what you can, to show us what we can handle in the time that we can. May we be people who worship you for who you are and worship you alone and submit our lives to you, God. We don't want our praise to simply be lip service. We want our lives to be surrendered to you. Thank you for these three men, for their courage and for what they teach us about you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.